Welcome to the September 2023 episode of our Bridging the Gaps podcast series, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum, the EHFF. I'm Caroline White, and I'm joined by Sean O'Connor. In this month's podcast, David Somek of the EHFF and Caroline White spoke with Bogie Eliason, the Director of Health at the Copenhagen Institute for Future Studies, CIFS. Bogie initiated the Nordic Health 2030 process and has a key role in both the Global Future Proofing Health Index and Movement Health 2030, which aspires to improve health by applying a new health paradigm. His current focus is facilitating the shift and building bridges between the fields of personal and public health. He calls himself a knowledge broker whose expertise lies in combining various fields of knowledge. We'll go over now to the interview. In this podcast, Caroline and I are delighted to have as our guest Bogie Eliansson from the Copenhagen Institute for Future Studies. We know Bogie well. He's worked with us on some of our webinars previously and It's always interesting to hear his take on a particular topic. In this situation, I've asked him whether he would talk about his view of the relationship between health and the environment. So uh, perhaps if you'd like to introduce yourself, Bogie, and over to you. Thank you so much. Yes, Boiliasen is my name. I'm from the tiny Faroe Islands where you are brought up, so to say, in the hands of the mood of nature because it's very stormy at some times. I mention this because I think that's very important also for our collective understanding and respect for nature. A part of it is that we are too much in cities and not enough outside of them. So I I lead um, health at the Copenhagen Institute for Future Studies, where we have the starting point seeing health as an investment. And that also means how do you work together with the planet? So it's one health or planetary health as uh, as a starting point. But it's also the environmental impact on you as a social determinant and your impact on the environmental or on the environment. So you could say maybe it's it's the human determinant on, on our planet. But I would, I would also like to stress that even if I'm... Uh, educated and brought up as a spoiled child of the richer part of the world. I have spent quite some time in Latin America, for instance, working with street orphans. I do still work with projects in Latin America where my wife is from, so my children are also half Peruvian. So this is a reality that we deal with. One part of these questions that I would like to address also today in our discussion, which I find really important in the discussion, is how do we make the many walk with us in saving our planet? So sometimes the things that we need to think about is how do you move the many a bit? And if you look at the reality outside of the richest 10% of the world, their life conditions is at a level where you not fairly can ask them to make compromises, to change their life in order to, to live more climate friendly, so to say. So this is where we see uh, an approach to health as a mean and as a tool to give people the opportunity to actually work with climate solutions where we make the many move a bit. So, So there is a question on the climate change effect 
on health, which is a real question because we, we get communicable diseases that move, we get more challenges with respiratory diseases, cardiovascular challenges of the climate. But the, the question that we are then focusing on is how do we help fairness, equality, equity, and using health as an investment to provide better life conditions, which again can be a source for a, I'm going to say, sustainable growth in society because we actually activate the potential we have in society with keeping people healthier for longer. So it's, it's a holistic approach to the economy of well-being in one way and then connecting it with how can you use some of those tools to actually improve our footprint or a more friendly footprint on our world and in concern of the climate changes. So would you like to uh, expand on that? I, I think it's, it's absolutely fascinating for me, this point you make. I was just listening to a podcast from a couple of years back where a French colleague, was, uh, who's uh, an economist, was saying that one of the problems, of course, is whether you have people with you or not. It's a bit like the problem of health. We know that health, you know, those of us who are interested in, in uh, a holistic view uh, know that health um, really has to be restructured completely the way we, we use it. And yet um, it's very difficult to take people with you because people don't think systematically. They think only of their own uh, situation. And this guy was saying in Paris um, that, oh, it's, again, it's an affluent society, but um, there was a huge yellow vest protest when they wanted to introduce things related to climate. They just didn't see it. They just felt, um, you know, <clears throat> not in my backyard sort of stuff. Uh, and that, that, it's a major issue. Yeah. So so I, I, I would actually take a, a very profound and, and maybe a little bit provocative view on this. So one thing I always ask decision makers who work in health, especially in health systems, is what is your goal? Is that to have the best possible health service or the best possible population health? So our approach to health in the right to health actually says the right to a healthy life. It doesn't say the right to a, to the treatment per se in this. So, so of course, there needs to be some equal access and rights to treatment, but that is a tool to the goal, which is a healthy life. But if you if you focus on the health system per se and not on the outcomes, you, you end up where we are now with the, with the most modern health systems falling apart because of depression. And another part is that the frame we are, so now I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit philosophical here, but the frames we're trying to solve our challenges of today in is based on the philosophical and political thinking that are at least 100, if not 200 years old. Uh, even I'm trained a political scientist. I love this literature. I like to read political science and philosophy and these things but they do not grasp the challenges we have of today. One of them is, the, is what is a social contract in a combined digital and geographical world? We have not come to terms with how do we work with this? Another concept that I'm, I'm beginning to get connected to with uh, which other persons have 
developed quite quite good is the idea of data solidarity. So while we discuss privacy, so so it can't be harmful, which is important, we do not discuss how do we make uh, data beneficial. Should not be harmful, but how do we make it so we can use it? So these are different parts of the discussion which comes into both the, the changes we need in health, but also the changes we need in making it possible for all of us to work for a better climate. So here, I, I do think that we are on the verge of a paradigm shift in way to see the world on many areas. So not just in health and not just in climate. And I do not think that this is something that comes very fast by itself. So this is probably a development phase of five, 10, 15 years before we settle down in a new way of understanding with some trials and error. So the reason I am trying to explain this in this way is that we need to be more considerate in where should we be impatient so to find solutions and near where do we need to be patient so we actually find the right solutions so doing the right things right so it's very good to articulate a burning platform but if we are are, are, are working with a burning platform on something that with something that is not really sustainable and beneficial we don't solve the issue and I, and I think that's where we have a challenge also with uh, with health today, where, where the pressure is always on access to more service and not on the access to more health or better health. Yes, I must say, I think I remember talking about a burning platform at, a, at the European Health Managers Association last year. And I think the problem is, isn't it, that people don't want to hear about bad news and they'd rather shut down just in the same way that uh, people are still talking about mitigating climate change without recognizing it's already happening and in fact we have to learn how to adapt it's just such a disturbing thought for people i do really admire what you said about the focus though uh, being on a healthy life rather than access to health it's not that the former the latter isn't important but it's the focus isn't it? it the emphasis still and this is again it seems to be a problem of people acknowledging the reality that prevention and and supporting health is economically makes much more sense than uh, pouring fires into sickness treatment. And yet uh, people just seem unwilling to uh, acknowledge that reality and do something about it. Politicians are always backing off uh, from doing it. I don't know what, mm. the, what interests me is how much can you talked about getting the, the larger group of people to shift? I mean, it, it raises the issue about bottom up you know, and social power, really, in perhaps bringing about change. Do you have a view on that? Yes, I do. So a part of this is what you are also alluding to, is, is it's not just about the ones in power. It's also about the, the demand from the broad masses. So both on climate change, but also on health, where, where we still have demands which are not really sustainable. So what we are trying to, to, to push here is, so economy of well-being, how do you make this a, a win cause? So it's estimated in, in our own work that 30% of the health services, so the sick care part that we need to provide today, are avoidable. So one thing is that this is a disaster economically for a system. That's one thing, but that's not the most important thing. 
the most important thing that this is un an unnecessary loss of quality of life for many, many people. So it's not about that we will not get ill. All of us will die at some point, and almost all of us of disease. But what we have accepted as a given, almost like a biblical given, is that if you gain longevity, it comes with extra disease burden. Why do we accept that? It's, it's, it's a very strange thing to accept. So, so one thing in a sustainable way of thinking is how do you live longer by being more precise with the knowledge and technology we have so we do early detection and early intervention and help people to, to have a healthier life. But it also means that we, we need to refocus on concepts like dignity. So what does it mean that you have a dignity in a system so you actually help people where, where you have the most impact of the resources that you use for that person, but also for the, for the society. So that's the, that's the social contract in it. But we also have some very strange expectations and asks from the population, both in climate change and in health. People are screaming democracy, but still waiting for the big monarch to take the decision and make the change. Right. So somewhere along the line, we also need to admit that politicians are overestimated. They don't have as much power as we think. They don't invent the new ways. They don't do the, the, do the directions. What they do is that when there is a critical ma mass that is pushing in a certain way, they can steer it in a best possible way. And we need that as well, both for transparency and for accountability and, and to move forward uh, with time. But, but I do think that we are not giving ourselves as stakeholders in the civil society and as, and as other academic stakeholders or, or knowledge stakeholders, I do not think that we are giving ourselves enough agencies and taking enough responsibility to be a, really, a real part of the change. That's a very interesting point. It comes back to, again, something about the nature of modern society, isn't it? You know, you were talking about a social contract in relation to the digital world and so much. Uh, I do agree. I mean, there's something there, isn't there, about open access and, and, you know, who controls data and so on. But coming back to personal responsibility, there's a sort of noxious trend in society towards egocentricity, you know, people that claim it's driven partly by social media and so on. And, and the question of happiness being equated with possessions and, and so forth, which, uh, and selfishness, in other words, really, which uh, it seems to be much more dominant now than, say, you know, for an old person like me, you know, I mean, 50 years ago, is far from perfect. But it seemed there was, you know, you talked about dignity a moment ago, there are whole areas, I think, to do with value systems in society. Certainly in Europe, I mean, again, I can only talk about Europe, not about South America, but because um, I know there are sterling examples in South America where that's different, but certainly in Europe and America, it does seem there is a major problem there about value systems, which also interferes with the common sense approach, you know? Yes. So, so this comes back to, to my point earlier with that um, our philosophical and political background, our, our systems there on how to deal with challenges is probably outlived. So we need to, to reinvent ways or, or at least adapt to new realities 
on uh, on on how we can work together to solve challenges. So some sometimes we forget that countries is a so, uh, social construction. It's something, and and countries as we know them today is not very old. Uh, if you are very optimistic on it, it was uh, it was invented uh, as a part of the Westphalian peace in 1648. But in reality, it only took its shape of today uh, a bit after the First World War and more after the Second World War. So it's actually quite new in that part. Many of the challenges we have do not respect jurisdictions and country borders. We need to work across uh, to solve them. So, so, And that's where we are a little bit in a limbo, because how do you work across jurisdiction and you still uh, have authority and, and accountability? in it. And that's a challenge which we have had a hard time getting up. But this also comes back to the to the local environment. Um, so one thing is that it's really good that we have a high attention and consciousness with the young generations on climate issues. But it's very much based on the global climate issue. There seems to be a lack of real activity in your local environment. So that's not just about um, uh, carbon footprint. It's also about how do you have a good society? So that's the social contract. And these two things go hand in hand. We, Of course, we need to take care of our planet, but we also need to take care of ourselves and our community. Uh, and in, in my uh, simple observation on this, and this also goes back to, to how we, we deliver and work with, with health, is that we have lost a part of that community sense and, and how we are together as persons. Um, and can we blame that on technology? Uh, maybe, but the biggest, the biggest challenge here is that we are not building or creating the cornerstones of the playing field that we think are fair. We are reacting to, to challenges when we see them, but we are not uh, carving out what is it for a society we would like to have, which is uh, environmentally sustainable, fair, and actually can, can make us live uh, better together. And this is where I think we, we simply do not have the vocabulary and we don't have the philosophical thinking to deal with the, with the challenges as they arise today. I wonder at this point... <laughs> I'm well aware of Caroline's interest. <laughs> She's smiling. Um, can, can we bring you in at this point, Caroline, to join the conversation? Sure, thanks, David. Yeah, happy to join in. That, that's, this has been really interesting so far. I, I think I'll make a couple of quick comments and then I have a question for you as well, Logie. One comment is, and David will smile at this, but when you mentioned sustainable growth, I immediately had like alarm bells because, you know, Growth is a trigger word for me, and that's a personal thing. But growth, of course, is a very broad topic. And the reason it's a trigger word for me personally as an ecological econom economist is because I associate it with GDP growth, which, of course, is a very specific thing. And uh, as I'm yes. sure you know, there's a lot of controversy about whether we can actually have sustained GDP growth in the future. Um, but I, I imagine when you mentioned it, you were probably referring, and you can clarify this if you want, but you, you were probably referring more yeah, to... I, 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 I can, yeah, I can clarify my very shortly. So, so I'm not thinking about the GDP growth per se. That's not what I'm thinking about. Um, but but there is a reality that a part of the world needs to get better life conditions. 
So, so how can we, uh, I mean, how can we secure that they get what they need? But, but it's also when I'm, when I'm saying we are lacking some ways of thinking to the challenges of today. So um, money is a part of value, but all value is not money, right? And if we want to work with, with economy of well-being and, and, and actually provide better societies without an, a GDP growth, we need to figure out what that means and what value is. And I do think we have a challenge here. A part of it has been addressed with economy of well-being, but there are other parts which are a bit difficult to actually talk about because we are a bit poor on what does this mean. Exactly. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm sure you probably know as well, a lot of the, I mean, in ecological economics, we'd be very aware that, as you say, a majority of the world actually needs more access to resources and to be able to use more energy, a large majority. And I'm only talking about aggregate growth. I'm not talking about growth in particular areas of the world, which is a asset for sure. And I thought your points about framing and about the need for focusing on, for example, overall health rather than just how much access people have to health services. That's, that's super, super interesting. And, and I suppose my question about that is, for example, when I look at the, in Ireland, like in a lot of countries, um, I'm, I'm from Ireland, there's a lot of talk at the moment about improving measurements of well-being. And there's a whole section on health. There's a new fra- framework and a dashboard, you know, and they're focusing on trying mm. to improve how they measure well-being and health. And in the Irish context, they're focusing, they, they've, they've basically put three things in this framework as a kind of a, an overall, to give a little bit of a snapshot of how healthcare is doing. And I would be really curious to have your comments. One of them is healthy life years. So that's, that's something. Another one is how many people have access to services when they need them. And that to me is a bit, that's interesting. It's obviously important, but yeah, I'd be curious to know what you think of that. And the other is how many people are reporting depression. So that's three things that they're focusing on. And I'd just be really interested in, if you have suggestions for better ideas of things to focus on, that would be great as well. Yeah, so, so, so I think, I think it's, it's a very important way to go and, and, and try to find ways on, on impact to what really matters. So what we have measured um, or benchmarked countries with has typically been access to specific kinds of care. We have not measured, do you really help the patients or not enough in that part? So, I mean, a a brutal question could also be, uh, the more hospitals you need, the worse off your social system is, you could say, right? If, If you're being very black and white on it. So, but I do think that there's a lot of pushes on moving our, um, uh, our understanding and our achievements from longevity to healthy life years. But it, what is not being brought up often is, so I think this is a right way to go and something that we push, but it does require some cynical decision-making. Because this is really about thinking about timing in when do you spend the resources. So a laboratory question here is, given you're a decision-maker in health, Everybody lives on average 80 years, so you have a budget for a person's lifespan or person's lifespan. Where would you spend the money? I've asked this to a lot of people. Nobody says that we do fine today, right? We are not spending the energy there where it, where it gives most value to the person, so the dignity part, or most value to the, to the society, so the sustainable part in it. 
So this is not about spending less resources on every individual person, it's when you spend it on the person. So when do you help them? But it likely also means that we need to get at peace with that we will die at some point and we will not make everything that's possible in those last months of people's life. And, and it requires a total new way of saying, okay, how do we leave this world? This is, which is also why I'm explaining that it's an impossible discussion for politicians to take into the public room. And nobody will do it. So it's, it's easy to say, it's very hard to do. But it's also about how, how our society sees this. And, and I do think that both in this question and in most of the other questions that we are doing with health, we lack to use the concept of dignity. So whenever you do something, do you keep the individual respect and dignity for the person when you do it? That automatically would also get us into not just the, the prevention per se, but also the secondary prevention that we are working a lot with. So how do you keep people not just healthy, but as healthy as possible when they also have some kind of a, a disease and especially chronic diseases that we that we have today. So, so one part that could be, and this is of my own interest, so I'm, I'm biased in this because we work a lot with it. A measure could be how good are you at secondary prevention so that people that get the, the first chronic disease, can you keep them away from the second so they get comorbidities because that's where life quality really falls and complexity for the system really rises. Now, for me, as coming from a, a health background, that is a very valuable point, I must say. And one can quite understand that politicians shy away from dignity in the context of allowing people uh, to die rather than wasting huge amounts of resource to re, uh, for them to live for three months longer or something. It's a painful decision, but clearly, again, this is about cultural values, isn't it? I mean, if <clears throat> there's this insane uh, notion that very rich people can somehow live forever or live to be 150 and so on, at whose expense it's like the insanity of uh, billionaires sending things to Mars or going on, on jaunts into the upper atmosphere you know, when there are people in their own country starving. You know, I mean, what is this about, you know, that people even mm -hmm. sanction such a thing? And so there is a sense about a renewal of, of cultural values which would support uh, these other common sense things. But this is tremendously difficult, isn't it? Again, it's a question of perhaps looking to, it's a kind of opt-out in some ways, it feels that you look to younger people to, to carry that banner. But the point is, who is supporting and guiding them? You know, I, it worries me that um, when I see climate protests uh, with young people, it's almost like this is just a kind of, iteration of the us getting at the old people you know it's a, it's a way of individuation you know that you have to rebel against something but it's not and then you discard that when you become a bit older then you forget about all that because you're just getting on with your life having kids and so on and i mean that's really worrying so yeah so so i mean i'm i'm um, i think i'm uh, i'm an optimist on that i think that uh, on average uh, the young generation is actually conscious on the challenges ahead. I do think, of course, there are some big challenges in, in what we want to deal with and how. 
So at a very young age, age and, and before the internet, I, I lived in, in Brazil, and this was where you did not have much knowledge about other cultures and countries, of course, in the same way as, to, as today. And one frequent question I got was, but how can you even have enjoyed living in a country with that much class difference? And what, what I realized with this question was that we think it's okay to live in a rich country and you have poor people in other countries, even if we live partly of their resources, but it's not okay if you live in the same country. So this is about re-articulating the social contract across boundaries, because to me, there's no difference. I mean, if you accept it, you accept it. It doesn't matter where you live. And, and this is probably one of the questions I'm missing, both in the climate debate, but also in the equity debate in, in economic well-being and in health. How do we get that part in? Well, I'm conscious of time, but I am fascinated to know from Caroline, and she's putting, she's wanting to come in anyway. But um, you know, what your your take on this social contract issue is? Perhaps you were wanting to raise a different issue. No, I actually was very interested in that too, and I think um, it's it's absolutely fascinating to look at research on this kind of issue. And as you say, Bogey, the need to look across country boundaries and to work on a global level. Um, and I mean. It seems to me that from what I've read of the research, there's a strong indication that people really like fairness. They like to feel that things are fair and they don't mind as a rule making some changes or trade-offs, sacrifices, if it seems fair. As long as there's like a kind of upper class or people who aren't involved or who believe they're above the system, then that undermines this sort of, you know, um, willingness to make sacrifices for understandable reasons. <laughs> so um, focusing on the fairness aspect seems really important. And uh, in my in my work with climate, um, we're involved with this thing called Cap and Share Alliance. And um, one of our groups of colleagues uh, who are researchers in France, they've done some really interesting research about whether people in wealthy countries would be willing to take a financial hit if they were certain that A, greenhouse gas emissions would actually go down. That's a big question, you know, if that would really happen as a result. And B, it was done in a fair way that helped people who aren't so well off. And in fact, surprisingly, in some ways, a majority of people were very much in favor of this, including in the US, which is really surprising. <laughs> a small majority in the US compared to other countries, but still. I think this has really been a stimulating conversation. And uh, thank you, Caroline, as well, for your contribution to added to Bogies. Bogies given us a, a lot of food for thought here, and we look forward to having a, a further conversation perhaps in the future about really what are some very knotty issues to do with climate and health and the and the social aspects of this, particularly value systems and and again doability, isn't it? I mean it's something that it concerns me about the well-being economy that both of us, Caroline, and also Sean Conlon, are engaged in in Ireland, that these are wonderful ideals, but putting them into practice, I guess we just have to accept that it's a, a long game, perhaps. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I think um, it's obviously there are things that are going to take a while, but sometimes when everything is lined up well, there can be surprisingly fast change too. So, you know, I think we have to, 
it's, you never know things can change but um but absolutely i mean there's some really important things that were raised and i find the whole as you mentioned david earlier the whole is, issue or the whole approach to well-being uh in latin america very interesting and it'd be great to talk about that some more at another point but i think there's there's plenty of food for thought anyway yes i think the fundamental thing is while we are we we believe we're realists and recognize how huge hills there are to climb fundamentally we're uh, we're in this business because we are optimists at heart. and uh, it's like believing in in the good in human beings despite <laughs> all the evidence that the other things are not so so good mm -hmm. so yeah thank you very much caroline for uh, hosting this conversation yeah. okay thanks a lot that was David Somek and Caroline White speaking with Bogi Eliason, the Director of Health at the Copenhagen Institute for Future Studies. Many thanks to Bogi and Mars Gunnach, the Leisha Kelly, for her music on the harp. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share the link on social media and keep an eye out for our next podcast, which should go online at the end of October. Mm -hmm.